They were two businessmen who hadn't seen each other since their university days. And they went with their wives to a conference and bumped into each other in the hotel lobby. They'd been roommates together in college and it was a surprise to them that they bumped into each other in the lobby and they obviously got talking. And uh, they had so much to catch up on, they got talking and ended up staying up all night in the lobby. Their wives had long gone gone to bed and they knew that they'd be in trouble the next morning. The next day, they saw each other again and one asked the other, what did your wife think? And he replied, I walked in the door, my wife just got absolutely historical. And he said, surely you mean hysterical? He said, no, no, no. She was absolutely historical. She reminded me of every single thing I'd ever done wrong. Do you ever get all historical and want to remind people of all the things that all the men and wives, men and husbands and wives are looking at each other now? You don't have to go very far in life, do you, uh, in order to realise that the deepest problems that we face in life are relational ones, aren't they? Living in the past, holding some deep-seated grudge because of some injustice someone once did to us, perhaps meditating and turning over in our minds how things might have been if life hadn't treated us so unfairly. I think one of the problems with this whole subject is that we never think that it applies to us. And we say something to ourselves inside like, oh, I understand how some people can be very bitter. And it's interesting to think about this whole subject, but obviously that's not me. Other people get bitter. Other people bear grudges. Other people have all sorts of hang-ups about stuff, but not me. In my case, this is not that nasty thing called bitterness. It's legitimate. It's justice. If you only knew what had happened to me in my life, you wouldn't expect me to forgive. I'm not bitter. I just want justice. One writer says this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come to savour to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back in many ways it is a feast fit for a king the chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself the skeleton at the feast is you. Very profound words those, aren't they? Well, we're in the middle, sorry, we're in the middle of a little series looking at stories Jesus told. And uh, we're going to look today at one such miserable skeleton as we uh, consider another story Jesus told. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant that Ben read to us. I'm just going to move this. I'm slightly worried that it's going to poke me in the eye. 
that's a bit better. I can see you all as well now. Now, as always, uh, I want us to really understand something of the background and context to this uh, story. None of the stories that Jesus tells are random. More often than not, they emerge from the reality of life. And um, I want to suggest to you that the context here is not so much the wider world, but rather the community of believing people that comprise the church. Chapter 18, in essence, is a chapter all about church. He isn't speaking about the world, but rather the believing followers of Jesus Christ. Um, This chapter, if you like, is really what you might call family business. Jesus here is teaching his disciples. He's not talking to the crowds. Um, I'll show you in a minute how that plays out. But first of all, let's just notice that disciples of Jesus are not immune from relationship problems. And sometimes I think as Christian people, we can be very naive uh, about this. Sometimes I hear people say things like, I just want to be happy in church. As if the nasty world outside is where all the problems are. And church will be all sweetness and light. And the assumption is that Christian people should never or, or, or do never fall out with one another. One wag made up a little poem about Christians. I don't know if you've ever heard this. To dwell above with those we love, well that will all be glory. But to live below with those we know, now that's a different story. You heard that before? <laughs> I think that sums up, doesn't that? This, um, let, let me just say this as well as an aside here, that this romantic ideal of a trouble-free environment or trouble-free relationship is one of the root causes of marital unhappiness. Isn't it? The, the kind of romantic idea that it will all be sweetness and light. The problem is that wherever you find people, you will find relationship issues. And I think the difference is, as I hope we'll see, is that Christian people have deep and rich resources in God, in the gospel, that will help us to face some of these relational difficulties. Now, I don't want to spend too long on the background because I want us to get into the story. But... um, We've said this chapter is all about church. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 18. Um, I was debating with Ben beforehand whether to read it all, but we we just read the parable. But if you can keep your finger in the the page there, we're just going to skip over very, very briefly some of the background. Verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest? In the kingdom of heaven, they're slowly getting the idea that Jesus has come to establish a kingdom. But they're still thinking in political terms, what's the pecking order, Lord? Who's going to be in charge? What's the structure going to be? Will you appoint a chairman or a CEO? Will decisions be made by some sort of committee? What kind of things need to be in my CV? For you, for you to consider me for a key role in this new kingdom. 
Are there any skills that I need to brush up on? Because I don't want to miss out. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What a question. These men are disciples. These men are followers of Jesus. These men are men who have given up everything to follow Christ. And their overriding concern is, who's going to be the greatest? Is it going to be me? What does Jesus do? Quite brilliantly, quite brilliantly, he calls for a little child. Has anyone got a child? And he brings a child in. I've got a picture of a little child. We did have. Go on, flick it on for us. He brings a little child. And what does Jesus say? Verse 2. He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I've asked you this question before. This is a question to think about when you're in the bath or whatever. Have you ever wondered why God invented children? Does that ever occur to you? Why did God invent children? You could conceive of a world in which people are born into adulthood. Obviously, the mechanism would have to be different. I don't want to frighten the living daylights out of all the women. But uh, you, you could conceive of, well, I think there are some animals in the animal kingdom that are born in their adult state. And yet, in God's creation, God has designed into the world this idea of birth, childhood, and growth to maturity. And this child becomes an object lesson for the whole group to learn something about how to live together in community. We haven't time to go into all of it, so read this chapter yourself and and meditate on this. But let me give you three very simple things that Jesus says here with this child on his knee. Children are dependent. Where are we? One more. Vulnerable, and there's one more, and very precious. Is that not true? When you see a little child, what do you see? Children are dependent, they're vulnerable, and they are exceedingly precious, are they not? Those three things come out in this chapter in an incredible way, as they argue about status and structures and greatness, Jesus says, see this child, be humble like this. And don't hate them by leading them into sin. And remember that every single one of them is precious to your Father in heaven. You can read through those verses all the way through down to verse 14 and see those three things playing out. This is a blueprint for community Christian friend, you are also dependent. You are not autonomous. You too are a creature, not the creator. You are human, not God himself. And Christian, you too are vulnerable. You you are, when you stop and think about it, beset on every side with things that would harm you and tempt you 
and draw you away from Jesus, from grace, from freedom, from safety. And Christian, you too are exceedingly precious. You are made in God's image. You have the spirit of Christ within you. You are loved more than you could imagine. So Jesus here uses a little chart to teach them something about humility, something about the seriousness of sin, and something about love that passionately seeks the one who goes astray. Now notice where Jesus goes next in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. It's interesting, we're still thinking about family. In verse 14, Jesus speaks about their father and his father in heaven. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, you see the family language? Fathers, brothers. And notice too that relational problems within this believing community are inevitable. What is crucial is how they're dealt with. Why should you confront sin in the community? Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 15. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. The whole point here is of establishing a community where the whole tone of the community is one of moving towards God. Moving into more light, more purity, more goodness. This is a community where people love and care for each other enough to confront sin so that they can grow together. This is a community too where people can trust one another enough to be honest with one another rather than pretend and put a face on. This is about creating an atmosphere of love and forgiveness where we can cooperate with God in bringing the best out of one another. Is that not a great vision of what a community ought to be? And it seems to me, from Jesus' words here, that the only disqualification from that community is when someone refuses to be a part of it. The escalation that Jesus talks about, if the person won't listen to you and you don't win him the first time, take someone else. And if he still won't listen, talk to the whole church about it. And if he still won't listen, only then, only then, treat them like you would a pagan. And why is that? Not because you want to punish them, but because you want them to come to their senses and come back to that community. Now we're getting uh, to the parable itself. Verse 21. The the big question. In, In all that we've said about community, the big question is, when is enough enough? Isn't it? And Peter, always the spokesman for the others. Always the spokesman. He comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, I have a question for you. How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? To seven times? He's not really understood the lesson. But he knows that problems are inevitable. It's interesting, isn't it, that he immediately assumes that it's his brother who will sin against him and not the other way around, doesn't he? 
He doesn't think he's done anything wrong. What shall I do? My brother sins against me. How often should I forgive him? Interestingly, Peter does have a real brother called Andrew. And I've, I've wondered about their relationship and whether Peter is having a subtle allusion here to a real issue. Do you know, Andrew was the one who introduced him to Jesus. Do you remember that, John's Gospel? Andrew met Jesus, and the first thing he does is go and find his brother. Peter comes along. And how many times do you think Andrew must have thought, Peter, do you think before you speak, will you, mate? I introduce you to these guys, and you just keep putting your foot in it all the time. I wish I'd never... Can you imagine the tension between them? And Peter ends up becoming the spokesman for the... He ends up becoming the leader, doesn't he? How does that make Andrew feel? I don't know. But Peter here says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Is he talking about Andrew? I don't know. Maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. But how many times shall I forgive when my brother sins against me? He instinctively wants to put a limit on love, doesn't he? Peter is asking here, what is the acceptable point where you've taken enough? You've been patient enough. You've been tolerant enough. You've showed enough grace. When, is the, when does the point come? When does a line come where you don't have to forgive anymore? Apparently, some rabbis, going back to these times, believed that you should extend forgiveness three times. And some commentators think that that's due to a misunderstanding of Amos. The prophet Amos in the Old Testament, chapter 1, verse 3, if you're taking notes, you can look that up afterwards. We won't go into that. But the rabbi said, three times. So when Peter suggests seven here, there's a little sense of him showing off. He, he thinks, I'll double it and add one. <laughs> the rabbis say three, I'll say seven. Jesus will think I'm really great if I can forgive my brother seven times. Lord, you know, I, I know you want us to forgive one another. But my brother Andrew, he keeps leaving the cap off the toothpaste. The rabbis say I should forgive him three times. I don't think that's enough, Lord. Should I forgive him seven times before I kick his head in? That's the sense of it, isn't it? Seven times? And Jesus' reply is, basically, Oh, Peter, who's keeping count? Who's keeping count? Not seven times, or 17 times, or 77 times, or 70 times, seven times. What is he's effectively saying to him, stop keeping records, Peter. Don't put a limit on forgiveness. It is an infinite number. Jesus is implying in a sort of humorous way that we shouldn't even count the offences and rack them up. 1 Corinthians 13, famous passage on love. It says there, love keeps no record of wrongs. I think the point of what Jesus is saying is, as he talks to this community, don't withhold forgiveness where it's needed. And what about the story itself then? We've got there. Verse 23, just to emphasize again that this is about Christian community. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king 
who wanted to settle the carts. You can miss that. Jesus is telling them a story here that is to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. Christian community. And he begins with this story of a king. Let's think about this parable then. You might say in this parable, if it was a play, there'd be three acts. I'm not sure at what point they'd serve the ice cream. Maybe after act two. Maybe after act one, actually, because act two and three kind of go together. But act one. Here we go. Oh, let's get rid of act two. And act one. And have act one back. I'm going to let you do it. Act one. The king graciously settles a debt. The king is sorting out his affairs, isn't he? And notice that it says that one of his servants is brought to him. I suppose he would never come and have owned up to this. He owes 10,000 talents. Now apparently, the whole tax income for this region at this particular time was 600 talents. So 10,000 talents is an unimaginably large number. One writer suggests that this was the biggest number they could conceive of at this time. They didn't, they didn't know what a number above 10,000 looked like. So this is Jesus saying he owed like zillions. <laughs> it's like uncomputable. His debt is gihumously enormous. It's big. You could work out the actual value because we know what a talent is and a miner. We did the parable of the ten miners recently. And the actual value is something like three and a half million quid. And this fellow, this poor fellow, is dragged before the king. The king orders that this man, who is either incompetent or a thief or both, is sold along with his wife and his family and the sheer patheticness, if that's a word, of his plea in verse 26 becomes to, begins to become clear. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, begged, and I'll pay back everything. Is he stupid? I'll pay back everything. I worked out that for, if one person was trying to pay this debt, they'd have to work for 150,000 years to pay this debt back. Now, I know he's got his wife involved and the children, maybe they're quite productive, but they ain't... They ain't be patient with me, I'll pay everything back. It's like, I'll find a way. Just give me time, I'll find a way. The shock in the story is that he is... This guy is ruined. He is completely lost utterly unable to pay and that is why what the king does next is so astonishing he is moved with pity verse 27 the servant's master the king took pity on him cancelled the debt and let him go what is being emphasised there I think is the vastness of the king's heart He takes pity on him and he cancels the debt. 
The words that Jesus uses are very significant. He, 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 he liberates the guy. It's like he sets him free. The burden that is hanging over him is gone. What an incredible thing for the king to do. That's act one. We have the ice cream now. And everyone goes up thinking, what a wonderful king. And then we'll come back after the break and get act two and three. Okay? So this is the second half now. You've all had a little break. Ice cream. And then we come back. The curtain goes up. And act two. The servant cruelly demands a debt. Verse 28. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants. Notice that in the first case, the first guy was brought before the king. Now, this guy goes out and finds a guy who owes him some money. Big difference. Also, the previous scene was about a king and a servant. So there's some subordinate relationship going on. But here he goes out to find one of his equals. This man owes him a, a hundred denarii. This is one six thousandth of what he'd owed. In other words, it's a tiny sum in comparison. But look at verse 28. He grabs him and begins to choke him. He grabs him by the throat. That's basically where you choke someone, isn't it? He grabs him by the throat, he pins him up against the wall and says, pay back what you owe me, now! And the poor chap says exactly the same thing that he just said to the king. Give me time. Be patient with me and I'll pay you back. The difference in this case is he could have. It's not as much of an amount. He doesn't have to work 150,000 years. Maybe with a little bit of time and thought and planning, he could have paid him back. Is he willing to wait? No. He refuses. And instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. That's Act 2. Act 3. <laughs> Go on. Act 3. Over there. The king hands him over to the torturers. You can imagine the crowd listening to this. You get in the drama and the story. This is so outrageous that even the other servants who saw what had happened, it says in verse 31, they were greatly distressed. They can see that this is totally unfair. And they go and tell their master everything. And the king calls the servant in, you wicked servant. I cancelled that debt of yours. No, he didn't say that. He says, I cancelled all, all that debt of yours. I released you. I liberated you. I completely cancelled the debt and set you free. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured. This man's doubly guilty, isn't he? Because, first of all, he knows what it is to be in great need. He's been there, hasn't he? He knows what it's like to be in such great need. Should that not have led him to be sympathetic? He's been there not ten minutes before. 
But more than that, has he not experienced forgiveness? Not only has he experienced need and should have been sympathetic, but he's experienced being let off. So should not he have shown mercy to you? He has been helplessly in debt and now has been inexcusably harsh. I was talking with Rich in the office about this story this week and it just occurred to me as we were talking it's amazing isn't it our human beings when we are in the wrong we want mercy when we're in the right we want justice isn't that amazing human nature when we're desperately in need we cry for mercy and yet when we're in the right we suddenly want to dispense justice and the king gives him over to be tortured the conclusion Jesus makes is in verse 35 and these these are chilling words really this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart There, there is a way to forgive which is grudging, miserable, and still self-centered. Jesus says, unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Wow, what a rousing chapter. I've got two applications to make. Are you still with me? Here we are. To be unforgiving, first of all, is to be a hypocrite. What do I mean by that? I think, um, just to go back to the story and try and understand it a little deeper, this story really is first of all a mirror that Jesus holds up so that we can see ourselves in it. And the first part of this story could hardly be a more fitting picture of how God deals with us. Couldn't it? One writer says this, We are debtors to our heavenly king who has entrusted to us the administration of what is his and which we have purloined and misused incurring an unspeakable debt which we can never discharge and of which, in the course of justice, unending bondage, misery, and utter ruin would be the proper sentence. And yet, our relationship with God is based on the most incredible forgiveness, isn't it? That our Father in heaven is moved to pity. He sees our plight as poor debtors, And says, I forgive you. From the heart, I release you. I I set you free from the burden that you are under. I want to drive this home, maybe to those of you who are perhaps not yet Christians. Do you understand that your position before God is not that great? 
You have debts that you can't pay. And what would it be for you, maybe today, to stand before him, penniless, spiritually, bankrupt? What a joy to hear God say to your face, I love you, I release you, I forgive you, I set you free. Jesus is holding up a mirror here so that we can see ourselves in it but also sense something of God's Father heart. Going back to what we said about the early part of the chapter, we are dependent, vulnerable, and exceedingly precious. And our Father God has a vast heart, and he does and can forgive every sin. In the New Testament, in the, in the letter that John wrote, First uh, John chapter 1 verse 9 there's a very famous verse that says this if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness what is so amazing about this is that it is free to you and me but it costs the king a great deal the death of his only son who bears our sin and shame so that we could be set free from the consequences of it. I think Jesus tells this story to describe the kingdom of heaven and he uses it to describe in the most vivid terms the greatness of our debt and the infinite riches of God's kindness to us. And the point is, if you have been so forgiven so freely, so completely, how can you withhold that same grace from others? The utter incompatibility of such harshness towards a brother on the part of one who has been consciously forgiven by God his great debt. Demanding justice when we've been shown mercy is criminal. Let me... uh, share some other verses with you in uh, the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church chapter 4 and verse 32 Paul writes these words be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you be imitators of God therefore as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In the letter that Paul wrote to Colossians in chapter 3 verse 13, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against each other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Jesus himself says in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 36, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. It isn't that God's compassion is won by forgiving. But it is unthinkable 
that those who are forgiven fail to forgive. Only the wicked who will not receive forgiveness act in that kind of way. So for someone who knows what this picture means and has known God forgiving them, the, the lesson is obvious, isn't it? To be unforgiving is to be a hypocrite. The second application, finally, is that to be unforgiving is also hateful to you. The truth is that we must forgive because unforgiveness actually damages us. It's not good to go over the details too much in parables, but I think it is significant in this parable that the master turns him over to the jailers to be what? Tortured. Why, why that detail? He could have just had him thrown into jail. The Greek word, it's not jailers to be tortured. It, 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 in the Greek, it actually says, the master turned him over to the torturers. He, he's basically given him up to suffer something. Some of you all know the Christian writer Warren Wearsby. And uh, he wrote this. Maybe these words will uh, sum up well for us. The world's worst prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. If we refuse to forgive other people, then we are only imprisoning ourselves and causing our own torment. And he goes on to say this. Some of the most miserable people I've met in my ministry have been people who would not forgive others. And they lived only to imagine ways to punish those people who had wronged them. But they were really only punishing themselves. If we live only according to justice, always seeking to get what is ours, we will put ourselves into prison. But if we live according to forgiveness, sharing with others what God has shared with us, then we will enjoy freedom and joy. Another writer I came across um, said this. Very sad illustration. A woman in her 80s told me that 50 years before, her aunt had said something that insulted her. And this woman in her 80s, had never forgiven her. Fifty years later, she could still recall the event in precise detail, and she still felt all the same bitterness, anger, and resentment welling up within her as when it had originally happened. It was no wonder to me that by this time she had become a bitter, crotchety, quarrelsome, unhappy woman who could find no happiness in life whatsoever. She was still in the hands of the torturers 50 years later. I came across a great definition of forgiveness this week. It said this, Forgiveness is giving up the hope of a better yesterday. That's very profound, isn't it? Forgiveness is giving up the hope of a better yesterday. If only, if only. There is a wrong way to apply legal correctness. This man in the second half of the story, he is right in a way legally. The guy did owe him a hundred denarii. 
But it is possible, isn't it, to press a case too far. It is possible for a Christian person even to hold someone else accountable for some mistake or offence. And actually what's happening is spite and jealousy are coming in to play. And the point is that bearing a grudge like this, it is like being the jailer. You have the key. And you keep the offending party in their cell. But the problem is you have to be there as well, keeping an eagle eye on them. Keeping them locked up. The person might be behind bars, but you can't go anywhere either. And the only way to set yourself free is to let them go too. Can I challenge you as we close? Is there someone that you need to set free today? Will you turn the key? Will you find it in your heart to forgive as the Lord forgives you? Amen.